This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. What's up, y'all? It's your host, Will coming back for another episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast. On today's episode, we've got quite the special guest coming on. And primarily, we're going to be talking about picking the right clothing for September archery elk hunting. That could be Colorado, Montana, wherever you're going to go. If you're a seasoned elk hunter or you're going for the first time, you definitely don't want to miss out on this because I thought to myself, who would be the best to talk about this? And of course, that's Mr. John Barklow himself. John's the senior product manager at Sitka Gear and also the owner of Knowledge from Storms. So if you want to check John out, just head on over to Instagram at jbarklow and you can check out everything he's done, what he's all about. But nonetheless, we got John on here to talk about that. We might go down a couple rabbit holes, but I just figured this would be the perfect time. You know, y'all are getting geared, getting ready, geared up for the mountains. September is not far away. And so I get John on here to talk about that. We go down some rabbit holes as well, but just want to thank him for his time for coming on with us. But y'all, there's a lot of podcasts out there. We just want to thank y'all for tuning in to the Hunt Stand Podcast. The support we've gotten from y'all so far has been amazing. We love it. We can't appreciate y'all enough. And if you're tuning in for the first time, thank you. And if you get the chance, make sure whether you're on Spotify, Apple Music, whatever you're doing, head on over there. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Rate and review for us. We greatly appreciate it. It helps us out a lot. And again, if there are some topics that y'all want us to cover or something we may not have heard about before or you've got questions send us an email to podcast at huntstand.com. That way I make sure your voice is heard. Sometimes things get lost in social media and YouTube. So nonetheless, we just want to thank y'all for tuning in to the Hunt Stand podcast, and we hope you enjoy this episode with John Barklow. Well, man, are you ready to get this thing rolling? Yeah, let's go. Sweet. Well, John, man, I really appreciate you hopping on the Hunt Stand podcast today. Can't thank you enough for taking the time. And what I like to do to get these podcasts started out is... I like for the guest to get to give the listeners a thirty foot tree stand view 
of who you are. So kind of tell us who you are, what you've done in the past, and how you've gotten to where you are now. Yeah, so I am the senior product manager at Sika Gear currently. And so what that means is I manage um, big game whitetail waterfowl, and then I'm still doing the specific job of the big game product manager. So that's kind of where I started with Sika about seven and a half years ago. Working backwards, I was in the military for 26-ish years. And and during that time, I did a lot of diverse and interesting things, but, uh, you know, very kind of eclectic career. But the last 20 of the 26, I was either working um, in a Naval Special Warfare, like a SEAL team, uh, working their, their diving programs, or I was training SEALs. And then when 9-11 happened, just because of some, we'll call it skill sets I had developed on the side. I was trying to get a mountain guide qualification, a ski guide qualification that I was one of 12 people hand selected to get the special operations community up and running to go to Afghanistan that first winter. So that really set the trajectory of both my military career and then even into my civilian career. And that allowed me to do a couple things that, that kind of dovetailed into what I do now, which was we sat down with the best outdoor manufacturers in the world. And we said, we need pants, we need jackets, we need puffies, we need sleeping bags, we need backpacks. And I was able to, you know, me and the team to work with all these people and mm-hmm. learn like how people did it. And, and honestly, it was an OJT type type of uh, job. And, and that actually gave me the skill set to get where I am now with Sitka. But we didn't just buy the gear and build the gear. We actually taught people how to use the gear. Yeah. And so it was really a full circle kind of thing. And, and man, I thought I knew a lot going into that job and I realized I didn't know half of what I thought I did. So it was, it was an amazing opportunity that, you know, very unique and, and, um, obviously once in a lifetime for me, but, but it's helped set the trajectory. So then when I went to sit guy, I just basically brought all those lessons learned, everything I knew, all that, all that knowledge and, and verbiage and how things worked and just try to, you know, apply it to Sitka specifically in the big game realm for uh, the last seven years. When did you decide to make that shift from military to civilian? Yeah, it's a great question. I uh, decided when I realized I couldn't keep up with the young guys anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, for, for a long time, for a long time, I was able to do that, not because I was necessarily in as good a shape, but I knew all the tricks. I had all the efficiency. I could move through the mountains, you know, better than most and certainly better than people who were just learning to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to do that. I had my kit dialed, you know, I, I was carrying less weight, all those kind of things. But, yeah. you know, I everything comes to an end and I knew it was coming to an end. And I figured I'd rather leave on my own terms gracefully um, then on the government's terms, maybe not so gracefully. So I, I, it took me about two years when I got the thought in my head, you know, we were just talking offline before we started and it was about two years. And I, I, first of all, you have to figure out what you want to do and, and you know, who you want to be, so to speak when you leave. And yeah, I I just, I mean, the hunting industry for me was, I, I wanted something that I could get behind, still have a mission, still be passionate about. And, uh, quite frankly, because people ask me all the time, like, 
I, I got lucky. I mean, yeah, I did, I think, have some skills to bring, but I also got lucky and needed people to help me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I just tried to take full advantage of the opportunity I was given. I love it, man. How did you how did you get into hunting? Was it kind of like the the stereotypical dad taught me brothers or did you were you kind of like a first generation in your family? Yeah, I wouldn't say first generation. My, my dad did some duck hunting. Mm-hmm. turkey hunting pheasant hunting but but really never when you know that was pre-children for him yeah so i you know and nobody had ever archery hunted and for whatever reason i grew up in northern ohio so whitetail was was king still is oh yeah and i was always fascinated by by hunting but then when i figured out this this bow hunting thing and i could you know put on camouflage and paint my face and and all that kind of stuff i was like you got to be kidding me like this i definitely want to do this and so oh yeah 12 or 13 i was completely hooked and i'm 53 now and i'm still i'm I'm more passionate now than i was then (laughs) so i was a self-taught i like to say i'm a self-taught uh whitetail archery deer hunter uh who had zero success none (laughs) but those are some of my best hunting memories ever yeah like literally just you know because it's the struggle and it's the journey and it's trying to figure it out you look back and i still have some of the gear and and it was uh you know it was it was just fun to 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 run around the woods and i remember you know my dad helped me buy my first bow and all that but anyways long story short then i went into the military and depending on where i was and what I was doing, I either had time or didn't have time. Um, and so I picked back up whitetail hunting in Virginia beach when we lived there, Mm -hmm. then we shifted out to Coronado and I did a little hunting there, but really my focus was strictly on the mountains. I told you I was looking to maybe, I didn't know if I was going to stay in, there was really no wars going on. And so I was thinking about maybe becoming a mountain guide or a ski guide or something like that. Long story short, 9-11 happens. I get transferred to Alaska, Kodiak Island specifically. And once that first year was over where we could kind of catch our breath and and we're starting to train guys, um, how could you not take advantage of living in Alaska? And so that's really where my hunting career, so to speak, ramped up, diversified, you know, still a passionate archery hunter, but now it was brown bear black bear doll sheep mountain goat i mean you God. name it it was on the list like everything probably a young boy dreams of and oh, reads yeah. about in outdoor life was literally just like laid out at my feet and so to me there was very little once i took a step back to me there was very little difference between what i was teaching the guys at work mm-hmm. and what i was using skill wise and the gear wise um, when I would go in the middle of nowhere in Alaska. And so they just became synonymous to me. And, uh, and so that's kind of, that's kind of where I still am today. I love it, man. I love it. Well, man, for this podcast, I really want to talk to listeners out there that they have gone elk hunting. They're looking to go elk hunting. And I want to frame this conversation primarily for that, that archery September elk hunter. And there's a lot that comes into play when going up in the mountains and you know that firsthand so yeah i really want to frame this on the clothing that is needed and the specific layers that are out there pants 
um, the different types of materials and what they can do to get the correct clothing so that they're able to have a meaningful and enjoyable time. Because you and I both know that if you don't have the right gear, you're going to have a miserable time and you're going to hate it and you're probably not going to go again. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, it's very true. Uh, you know, and I think the difference, Will, is that, like I just said, I, I'm a whitetail hunter. Like it's in my DNA. It's where I grew yeah. up. But, you know, I can walk to my stand. I can walk back to the truck. Mm-hmm. Probably not going to take any longer than just say 15 to 30 minutes. Right. Yeah. So I'm very close to to getting out. Whereas when you come out west and you go into the mountains, even if you go in for a day, like generally it's a long day, right? Oh, yeah. You're miles away. Maybe you don't have cell coverage. Maybe you're in, you packed in, you hiked in for multiple days or a week. So my point is the clothing and, and, and everything that goes around that just becomes that much more important. So when I'm sitting on a whitetail stand, really the problem I'm trying to solve for generally is staying warm, right? Yeah. We'll, we'll stereotype here just for the sake of time, but I, I'm going to sit, I'm not going to move. I need to be quiet. I need to stay warm so I can focus and make a shot, yeah. right? When you come out west, it's more of a dynamic environment. So although there are periods of, of stationary, uh, you know, or static activity, so sitting behind glass, staying in camp, um, you know, sitting on a bull and, and waiting for him to make a mistake in the afternoon, most of the time we're moving around. And, and more importantly, if we are static behind the glass, say, and we get, uh, and we get cold, we can get up and move around. We yeah. can do push-ups. We can walk around the tripod. We can do jumping jacks. Like, and generally that's not going to scare the animal away. So out here, out West, we're really trying to solve for management of moisture, breathability. We need durability. We can't have this thing fall apart. Right. Mm-hmm. So it it's, they, there are mostly there's similarities, but there's a few differences. And so the first thing I would say is if somebody has well, I'll call it technical, some technical clothing for whitetail hunting. It doesn't really matter the brand, but if it's, if it's a well-known technical brand, you probably already own, I'm guessing a third to half of what you need. Now, could you specialize a little bit more? Could you over time buy a few more things? Yeah, you probably could. But if you've already got base layers, wool or synthetic base layers, like you don't need to buy, there's no specialized base layers to come out and hunt elk out west right right so uh so i've talked about this a a, a few times and and i'm actually writing a writing an article for my newsletter uh, to go into a lot of depth here but what i when i step back and i realize that no matter if you're whitetail hunting waterfowl hunting or let's just say elk hunting in september you only need eight pieces of clothing so those eight pieces of clothing don't count hats and gloves and those eight pieces of clothing may shift like, yeah, I'm going to have a little more specialized whitetail gear that I might not be able to use elk hunting. But people think they need like a big duffel bag full of clothes. And the mm-hmm. reality is you don't. If you're if you're coming out here, like I would carry on average, I carry eight pieces of clothing in the field. And when I say okay. carry, some of them are on my body. Some of them are in my pack. And so I'll, I'll kind of go through that. And, and, and you know, the. The whitetail hunter should be thinking, oh, well, I've already got that. Oh, I've already got that. That's probably going to work. And then over time you can, you can modify, but all of a sudden the price, 
the price comes down considerably when you're like, oh, geez, I don't have to buy a completely new set of gear. Maybe I can supplement and over time figure it out. So I talked about the base layers. And so that's maybe next to skin would be the better the better term here. But it's it's the layer that goes right next to your skin. So base layer, long underwear, call it what you will. It's critical because what that does is it manages our moisture. So mm-hmm. it pulls moisture off our skin. And if our skin's dry, we're going to be warm in a, in a, in a cold environment, or as that moisture comes off our skin and we've got nothing on top in a hot environment, that's going to cool us down, right? It's going to pull heat away from our body. So whitetail hunting, big game hunting, same thing. You have synthetic or wool to choose from synthetic moves moisture quicker. Uh, but it, but it can stink over time, which is an issue when you're out West or, or even whitetail hunting. Um, wool doesn't maybe dry as quick, but it manages odor really well. And you know, people tend to like it. So you can do whatever you want, but top and a bottom or top and a boxer, something like that for, for September, you know, it surprises people, at least here in Montana, every September archery elk season, at least one of those weeks has a snowstorm. Yeah. So I think people need to be prepared, but you know, if I'm not wearing the, the base layer bottoms, the long john, so to speak, I'll at least carry them in my pack. Because the weather can change, right? So oh, yeah. base layers first. Second piece is a pair of what I call soft shell pants. So those are your hunting pants. Um, if you have some early season whitetail hunting pants, like there's a good chance if they're not like super soft and quiet where they're going to pick up a lot of burrs and vegetation, like there's a good chance you can wear those out out west here. But yeah. soft shell hunting pants basically, you know, provide protection from some light precipitation and like, you know, crawling on the ground and things like that. Obviously big game honey pants can be really specialized and have removable knee pads. You know, we often put new pads, uh, knee pads in our big game pants. They can be removable, but you know, you can get there. And, and quite frankly, some people don't, don't like knee pads or, you know, don't know if they want to invest in those. Right. Um, but, but that soft shell pant is critical. And really, the choices to me are nylon or polyester. Mm-hmm. And so most every legitimate hunting brand is going to make nylon or polyester hunting pants. Um, nylon may be a little more durable, but expensive. Polyester is probably not going to pick up quite as much water. It's kind of a push. Um, but either one's going to be absolutely perfect for coming out here. Um, really, it's just what kind of pocket you want. Do you want knee pads, all that kind of stuff? You right. know, do you want it camouflage or solid? Um, so that's kind of the third piece of the system. Um, the next piece of the system is what I call active insulation. So you and I were talking about this a little bit before we jumped on. So, uh, so active insulation can be something you put on your body that gives you a little bit of insulation in the cold when you're moving, or you just need a, a little extra insulation when you're when you're sitting there, but you don't need a full like puffy jacket, right? right? But right. but generally, this just breathes really well. The most basic form of active insulation is uh, like a heavyweight fleece, like a grid fleece. Yeah, you put it on, provides a little insulation, right? Traps a little bit of body heat, but there's really nothing to stop the the heat from escaping, so mm-hmm. it breathes pretty well. You can put that on, move around the mountains. Um, there's a few brands, uh, in the honey market now that are starting to do what I call hybrid active insulations. 
And what they're doing is basically taking something like a a, a grid fleece, and, and there's a bunch of different ones out there, but they're putting a protective face on the outside. And yeah. so what that does is now I have this thing that, that, you know, is still highly breathable, depending on the face you put on it, still highly breathable, still I can move around in it, still going to give me a little insulation when I stop, but it's going to shed light rain and snow. So I'm not going to have to stop immediately when a squall comes through and put on a rain jacket, maybe miss an opportunity at a bowl, right? Right. Um, it's going to provide more durability to that fleece. So oftentimes that fleece can get really pilled up where the shoulder straps are on your pack or even like your tree stand harness. This this takes care of that. Um, and generally speaking, they're quiet. And so you can also drop in a few features like a chest pocket or something like that. So yeah. Two years ago in Iowa, I, I drew my Iowa deer tag two years ago, and we were testing. Um, so this is this is on a Friday. So in a couple of days from now, Sitka is going to launch its new Ambient series. So this yeah. is our this is our update to the to the active hybrid active insulation. I'm a huge fan. Probably coming across, uh, probably coming across in my tone and cadence of speaking. But like a lot of people in the hunting industry like whitetail hunters, waterfowl hunters, obviously big game hunters, they have no idea that they need this yet. And, and so I'm excited, but two years ago in Iowa, when I was testing this and believe it or not, it was that long ago, I killed my buck, uh, archery buck. I killed my buck wearing the first proto of this ambient hoodie. Really? So, th so my point to this is like, there's so much crossover. So you could buy an active insulation piece or a heavyweight hoodie or a heavyweight fleece piece and whitetail hunt in it. And then depending on what that looks like, you absolutely bring it out West and, and elk hunt with it. Right. And it's perfect for those September, October seasons we have out here. Dang. So that's piece, that's piece four. I'm excited about that. I, I, I am too, actually. Um, it's been a long time. I've actually, me and another guy have actually been working on that. So that's a proprietor. Well, it's not anymore, but Sitka, me and this guy from Sitka actually started developing that insulation with Primaloft three years ago. Okay. Um, and it's, you know, it, it, when you look at it, you're like, I don't get it. It doesn't seem like it's that hard. But, you know, when you're, when you're doing lab testing and stuff, it takes a while. Um, but, no, I, I think there's so much value in that. And it's one of those pieces I, I, I always take with me now. Um, and let me go to the next piece, and then I'll circle back and tell you how this combo works. Okay. So that the, the next piece that a lot of people either overlook, don't know about, misunderstand, or never think about is uh, some type of wind stopper layer or like wind shell. Kind of like a DWR coating type or? Yeah. So not rain gear. Okay. Right. But, but something that breathes better than rain gear, but, but blocks the wind like rain gear. So think like a simple wind shirt, you know, um, uh, right now, sick has something called the mountain jacket. Yep. It's just a super thin layer you can put on. So it's going to, it's going to be, I like to say it's like your 85, 90% solution. Most of these wind stopper or wind shells have a great DWR. They're going to shed, not a downpour, but they're going to, again, shed those squalls, shed that light precipitation. Um, but they're going to block the wind and, yeah. and 
the the I'm a huge proponent of wind stopper. Period, especially on it in a tree stand. Like I, I'll even go two layers um, throughout my system. But when you come to the mountains, it's always breezy. It's always windy, even, and that you know can be. I'm on a ridge top glassing because that's where I need the best vantage point, and you're going to be exposed on that ridge line to win. Mm-hmm. Or you're down lower in camp, but those thermals are shifting up and downhill. And so you're going to get wind in the morning coming down. You're going to get wind in the afternoon going up. But blocking the wind is oftentimes really all you need to do to stay warm. And and we think, oh, man, I need to put on all this clothing. And in actuality, sometimes all you need to do is just block the wind because wind like quickly and easily strips body heat away from the human. It's called convective heat loss. All right, y'all, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. The Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Yamaha and its full line of class-defining, adventure-seeking motorcycles, ATVs, and side-by-side vehicles. Up next, Federal Premium. Go beyond what you ever thought possible with Federal Premium Terminal Ascent. Bonded construction penetrates deep on close targets, while the patented slipstream polymer tip initiates expansion at velocities 200 feet per second lower than comparable designs. The bullet's long, sleek profile offers an extremely high ballistic coefficient and its AccuChannel Groove technology improves accuracy and minimizes drag. And finally, we've got WorkSharp Tools, the knife sharpening company. We just wanted to thank all of our partners of the Hunt Stand Podcast, and we're going to get right back to this episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast. So I, I bring something either like a little simple wind shirt. There's a couple like black diamond makes one Patagonia makes one, you know, or I step up to a little bit more of a, like the mountain jacket, which is no insulation, but a little more durable. Or if I'm late season hunting, or if you're going to come out and late season rifle hunt, or if you're going to late season rifle hunt and hunt the rut, then I bump up to like an insulated wind stopper type jacket. And oftentimes these are less expensive than rain gear. You're going to wear them more than rain gear. And they're a hell of a lot more durable than rain gear. So I, I like to put some type of wind stopper piece into my eight layer system. Now, let me jump back to the active insulation piece. I was just up in Northwest Montana, up kind of against the Idaho Canadian border, uh, bear hunting this spring, go up there, not really any kind of elevation, but, uh, you know, but, uh, yeah, 5,000 feet or something like that, maybe, mm-hmm. but. Um, and it was, it was right before Memorial day weekend. And one day we got snowed on all day. Damn. One day was clear and, and sunny and, 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 and enjoyable. And then the next day, cool and rainy. Right. So the three out of the four days were like super different. Yeah. And we were walking logging roads. We were stopping and glassing. We, we'd move over try to put a stock on we'd walk back we'd sit down we'd glass so you're kind of stop start stop start and i had a a a thin synthetic base layer on i had this active insulation piece i just told you about and i had that mountain jacket over top of it because the one day it was raining or uh, the one day it was snowing i had the mountain jacket on Mm -hmm. the one day it was sunny and clear it was windy so i had the mountain jacket on and i needed that insulation and the third day it was raining I needed the mountain jacket or the wind stopper to shed light precipitation, but it was cool enough. I had the active insulation piece on. So those okay. two things work really well together. Yeah. And 
although I'm a big proponent of you wearing it on stand, I, you know, people may, they may argue that point and that's fine. But I definitely think when you come out West and you're in the mountains and you have all these different winds and, and listen, when you come out here and you have stock after stock blown, cause the wind's erratic, like you'll figure it out pretty quick. Um, but anyways, I think wind stopper is a huge piece. Number six is the static insulation jacket or the puffy jacket, right? Okay. So this is going to be a piece that's probably going to be not in the general whitetail hunters arsenal from back east because it, you know, normally these are a little, they can be uh, bulky. They're not super quiet. They're not going to be as durable to like roll up against a tree and put a harness on and you know, it's just not a whitetail piece. So yeah. this may be a piece that's a little more specific to the Western hunter, but the puffy jacket is absolutely critical. And no matter the time of year, no matter what I'm doing, uh, big game wise, I always have this in my pack early season. Maybe it's a lighter weight version in say down and maybe later in the year, it's a heavier weight version in synthetic, but nonetheless, the puffy jacket sits in the pack. And when you stop the glass, when you, uh, you know, are, are stopping to take a break, when you're hanging around camp and the temperatures are dropping, yep. that's when you put the puffy jacket on. And all it does is that, that, that dead air, all that loft it creates, it just captures our body heat and holds it close to our body to keep us warm. And so if you get ready to hike, you take it off, you move, maybe you have the active insulation piece on. Mm-hmm. When you stop, you're going to be there for a while. It's breezy. It's cool. Take it out of your pack, put it on. And, and that's going to really help you regulate your temperature. It's going to help dry your clothes out. So it's really a critical component. And, and honestly, to me, I consider part of like, quote, my survival gear. Because if I have to, you know, let's just say we, we kill a bull at, at last light. We quarter it up. Takes longer than we think. We're tired. We don't want to move back to camp. I'm going to put that puffy jacket on. We're going to build a fire. It's going to keep us warm enough that we can ride the night out. Yeah. And we'll hike back to camp in the morning kind of thing. Right. So yep. lots and lots of uses for that. Um, and then finally, so piece seven and eight are the rain jacket and pant. Yeah. And again, listen, I don't, I personally don't like to hunt whitetail in the rain um, for a couple of <laughs> reasons. One, it's just not enjoyable at all. Yeah. Uh, living in Alaska, I, I do not enjoy the rain anymore. I imagine. Uh, and second of all, you know, I've always been cautious about shooting a deer when it's raining, like raining hard. Cause you know, just cause of blood trailing. But when you, again, coming out West, like you need a set of rain gear because yeah. you could be on, you could be on the East side of a, of a mountain and oftentimes storms in North America roll from the West, right? So I could be on a mountain, say hunting elk, seven, 8,000 feet in Colorado, and it's totally sunny and, and pleasant, but I don't see the giant storm rolling from the West. And all of a sudden, by the time it rolls over the top, it's right on top of us. Yep. Boom. You need to have your rain gear, right? So I tell people buy rain gear. That's I, I call it car insurance, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to buy it. Nobody wants to use it. But when you need it, you're like, gosh, I'm really glad that I spent the money to buy the best I could. So yeah. you kind of get what you pay for with rain gear. But there's there's tons and tons and tons of options. Maybe the whitetail hunter has some. Maybe he doesn't. But you just want it light. And you just want something that can you can put in the bottom of your pack. And if and when you need it, you pull it out, you put it on. Yep. 
you use it. And when you're done, you put it away. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, this is the most expensive layer in your system. This is the one that's kind of a big investment or can be. Um, but there's lots of great, you know, you can buy a set of rain gear. I could buy a set of rain gear for, you know, the, the top and bottom, the jacket and pant for 400 bucks, or I could spend 400 bucks on just the jacket. So everybody's kind of got to figure out what, what works for them. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but you should, at the minimum, you should have some type of rain gear. So those eight pieces, probably four, I'm guessing four to five of those, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the whitetail hunter already back East has yeah that he can. And then you, you buy a couple pieces supplement and then just go out and try it and just see if it works. Um, and, and that's kind of what I use, uh, no matter, you know, no matter the time of year, unless it's extremely cold or I'm like down in the desert Southwest, you know, in August chasing antelope or something. So there's always the, the extremes on each end. Eight pieces is generally what I'm using a big game hunt or whitetail hunt. Now the whitetail, I, I switch a little, a couple things out, but, mm-hmm. um, but really that's all you need. When you start to look at it, it's not all of a sudden not as overwhelming to go, man, if I buy two or three things and supplement my whitetail gear, I can go hunt elk in Colorado. This yeah. Year. It's yeah. That's, that's a good point to make. Cause I'd never really thought about it that way before you know me being from texas i always thought okay i got my whitetail stuff but i I need to get a whole different kit for elk but i never thought about it that way yeah well you know i i understand that sometimes price point is a barrier to entry Mm -hmm. but oftentimes that price point isn't nearly as high as people think you know so and, and and honestly there's so many brands I mean, obviously, of course, I think we make the best stuff, right? Because I, I, I make it with my team. I, yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna blow smoke and say I, I don't <laughs> think that. But, but I will also tell you that there's a lot of great brands out there, yeah. and there's a lot of companies that that people can choose from, and you can, you know, don't be afraid to mix and match and things like that. But yeah, you can find it. Listen, if you're gonna go west. And you don't know if you're going to do this for the next 20 years. And you don't know if you're going to like elk or mule deer hunting. Like, yeah, you don't have to invest in a $700 set of rain gear. I mean, it might save your life, but you know, you could probably get away with like that $400 set. Mm -hmm. And if you never come back out here, uh, it's still going to work great, you know, back East, wherever you live or Midwest or whatever. Right. Absolutely. Um, so I would just say, you know, kind of ease into it, but don't let that stop you from going on that hunt. Like I'd rather people go on the hunt and, and, and slowly build out their kit than than sit at home and wait till they have everything perfectly dialed. Like, oh my gosh, like I've invested five years in buying this gear and then go on the hunt. Like, I think you should probably do both at the same time. And I, I liked what you said about mixing and matching. I think there's been people out there like, oh, I don't want to wear this camo with that camo, but um solids have become ever ever increasingly popular solids are i mean i can't i i I don't want to make a i'll make a blanket statement but you know but basically hunting solids across the industry Mm -hmm. especially big game uh is probably one of the fastest growing segments of big game hunting and the reason is one i can buy a 200 hundred dollar pair of pants in solid and wear them all year, mm-hmm. hiking, scouting, backpacking, around the house, to the bar, whatever it is. 
and I can go hunt with them, right, for elk. Yeah. Whereas you're not probably going to do that with a camel pant. And no. the other one is, <laughs> you know, I like I like the pant from brand A, and I like the jacket from, from brand B, and I like the, you know, the puffy jacket from brand C. Well, you know, let's be honest, it's a bit of a fashion show. Nobody likes to totally mix and match camos, yeah. and there's yeah. so many different ones. But if I buy everything in solid or a few things in solid, because I like one particular camo, so I'll buy, you know, that jacket, so to speak, or whatever in that pattern, then all of a sudden it doesn't look goofy. And and mm -hmm. I think people are doing that. Listen, I'd I'd obviously prefer everybody buy, you know, from one brand like 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 mine, but but I also understand that again, people have different stuff, people have different tastes, stuff fits different. Um you know, I buy if people, you know, I hunt a little bit on camera, but not not very much. And it's only for marketing. Yeah. Um, obviously, I have to wear like my uniform, so to speak. Right. Yeah. I mean, head to toe camouflage. But if I'm hunting on my own, I, I wear competitors products. I wear solid color hunting pants. Like I try a lot of stuff and I, I may look goofy, but, you know, I want to <laughs> see what's out there. I want to see how it works. I want to. And so I don't think people should be concerned to do that either no and the heck the whole thing with the solid game it's easier to justify with the the significant other too to to buy a more 100%. expensive pant a hundred percent yeah if you're if you're if you buy a 200 dollars pair of pants and wear it 15 days a year vice that 200 dollars pair of pants you wear it 200 days a year mm -hmm. all of a sudden i can justify wearing it 200 days a year yeah right yeah so one area i want to talk about you know when it comes to elk hunting, September, everybody always talks about, and when people ask me this, like, hey, I want to go elk hunting, what do I need to get first? What do I need to not try and cheap out on? I tell people, your boots and your pack. Those are super important because, A, the pack is what carries your gear around. You want to make sure you've got a great pack that's going to last. It's durable. And then you want to make sure you have a really good pair of boots. And the thing that I don't think a lot of people talk about are socks. Uh, yeah. There's different types of merino socks. I think a lot of I think the thing that I've kind of seen from those whitetail guys is they bring these wool heavy socks out and their feet are just sweating and they take their their sock and boots off at the end of the day and they've got a piece of skin about the size of a dollar coin peeling off their heel. So talk to us about socks. Like how important is it to get the right sock chosen? Yeah. So I'm trying to think, I don't know if, I, so I told you I've got this monthly newsletter. I don't know if it's this month. So June or next month, July, but I wrote a whole thing on this because yeah. socks are that critical. Um, mm -hmm. we can circle back to, to boots and, and packs, but hell, that's probably a whole nother podcast, but, oh yeah, but you're right. <laughs> but, but, but you're right. So yeah, socks are inexpensive enough that we should that we should buy several different types mm -hmm. from several different brands, even if you want and try different combinations. And so, you know, you buy a pair of boots, maybe those boots fit you right out of the box. Maybe they don't, right? If they do, then you're lucky. And if not, you're like, well, geez, I just spent, you know, $400 on boots and they fit kind of tight, right? Yeah. Or they're, they're too warm and my feet sweat. Well, the, the, you know, one of, the most efficient and effective ways to modify the fit or performance of that boot is with a sock. So if you do have that thick wool sock that comes up to, to your knee, 
because that's what you're wearing in your rubber boots for whitetail season, you might need to get a mid-calf, mid- or lightweight sock yeah. to put in your, your hunting boot. So if it's too tight, try a, a sock that's not as thick right mm-hmm. um if it's too warm try a sock that's not as that's not as thick right because it's not as warm um so you can really modify the fit of a boot that way and the performance uh the other thing is there's a couple different kinds of socks and so two two you know the two most common are what we'll call a liner sock so think of a liner sock as that base layer for your foot okay so it's super thin you put it on and really the, the, the biggest thing that a liner sock does is it, it moves moisture away from your skin. So if your skin's wet on your foot and you're in a boot that doesn't fit real well, you're going to be more prone to blisters because your skin kind of gets soft and breaks down when it's super wet all the time. Yeah. So if you put a thin liner sock on, it just moves moisture super quick. And oftentimes you wear a, a, a more traditional hiking sock on top of that. So it moves it to that next sock. The other thing it does is because you're going to wear two pairs of socks and the liner sock fits. So it doesn't fit tight, but it fits it's form fit mm-hmm. that, that your foot's really not going to move around very much in that sock. And so between that sock and the hiking sock, it actually provides this layer where it doesn't create as much friction between those two socks. So oftentimes you're not as prone to blisters. So some people are like, man, I'm just prone to blisters. I got weird deformities on my feet or the way my (laughs) heels shaped or whatever, you know? And I say, Hey, wear a liner sock, put a, put a, like a midweight hiking sock over top of it. Try that. The other thing it does is, so those are the two things it does. The other thing or the uh, type of person that can help is I get a lot of people saying, man, my feet sweat a lot. So again, if your feet sweat a lot, that liner sock helps move that moisture yep. to the hiking sock. Now, I wore liner socks for years, maybe a, a decade. I don't necessarily wear them anymore. But if you're going to wear a liner, if you think you need to wear a liner and a hiking sock, you're almost better to like try that combination when you're when you're buying boots if you mm-hmm. can, because again. If you really need that combination, it might be too, it, you might need to move up half a size, right? Or something like that. Or yeah. I don't need this thick a sock. I'm going to go down to a thin sock. You might need to go down half a size. So socks are super critical, but no matter what, even with boots that are broken in, if I haven't hiked in a while or it's excessively warm and so my feet are sweating, sometimes you need to apply tape to your feet. And sometimes, and oftentimes I say it's better to be preventative with the tape yep. than to get a blister or a hot spot that's already painful and then put tape on. Um, but you know, if I, if I'm going out and I know it's going to be either steep or rugged or, you know, I'm going to have a heavy pack on for a week or whatever, like I'm going to pre-tape my feet and I pre-tape for me, I pre-tape my, my two small toes and my heels. And I use something called Luco tape, L E O. L-E-U-K-O, Luco tape, and it's unbelievable. You put it on, and here's the trick. Once you put it on, you have to leave it on. Do not take it off (laughs) because that stuff sticks so good that if you try to peel it off every night, you're literally going to damage your skin. You're going to create a problem as opposed to prevent a problem. Yeah. I'm, I'm, 
I was say I made a mistake one time. Uh, my first year I went elk hunting, uh, I took too heavy of a belt with me. And so whenever I was wearing it, I had, uh, my pack was rubbing my hips like no other. Oh, and uh-huh. So I put some of that Luco tape right on top of those rub marks on my hips and it worked wonders. And I left, <laughs> I left it on when we got back for like a week. Cause I was afraid to yeah. rip it off. Oh no. I've, I've been taking a shower a week after a trip and finally that stuff like decides to peel off. But <laughs> yeah. I've, I've also said, oh no, I'm done. I'm going to pull it off and literally damage my skin. Like <clears throat> once it's on there, it's perfect. It's like low friction. It's, it's awesome. Just leave it. Uh, yeah. But so just, just to kind of finalize or finish up on socks. So really you can buy a synthetic or a wool sock. Yep. We already talked about weights and the different types. Um, for socks, most of the time you're going to find the, that you have the most options with wool and there's lots of different brands, you know, darn tufts, kind of a, a, a common one. There's, yeah. there's a bunch of different brands out there. Um, but like I said, try a few different ones. Some are more durable than others, but yeah, generally speaking, most of those socks are going to be wool. And then this is something that I think if you haven't, you know, done it, you people may overlook is you want to carry, you don't want to carry a lot of extra in your pack mm-hmm. when you're running around at, you know, eight, 10,000 feet chasing an elk, but it definitely helps, especially on a multi-day trip to bring at least one extra pair of socks. Definitely. And, and, and every single night when you're, when you're in camp, you're ready to rack out, go to sleep, take your boots off, change your socks. Yes. So, Pull, take your boots off, air them out, dry them out, pull those socks off, dry your feet out. Maybe you treat them with powder, uh, or some people put an antiperspirant on their feet, like just like your armpits, if they sweat too much and then put the dry pair of socks on Wear those the next day while you're drying the ones you just took off. So the damp ones, you dry those overnight, your sleeping bag or your puffy jacket or hang them in a tree, whatever. But you're always swapping them out every single night Mm -hmm. because what happens is, especially with like the hiking sock, not so much with the liner sock, but with the hiking sock, you kind of have this soft cushiony padding that the sock provides. And so over time, like just hiking and hiking and hiking, you kind of you you tamp out or or compress that loft. And so all of a sudden the sock isn't isn't as uh, comfortable. But the other thing that happens is. When you're sweating, that sweat has salt in it. So those salt crystals become abrasive on your skin. So by swapping them out every night, you can get with two, with one pair on your feet and one extra pair in rotation, you can get, you know, six days with just those two pairs of socks, one on your foot and then one extra. Um, you know, if people sweat excessively, then maybe you throw, you know, a second extra pair in and just do an every other, you know, kind of a, a three-day rotation. Yeah. But it keeps them lofted. It dries them out. It doesn't get them super uh, uh, salty because foot health, as you know, man, you got to cover a lot of ground when you come out west just to find the animal, mm-hmm. um, let alone actually try to put a stock on it. If you can't move around and, and believe me that I'm, I'm talking from experience here, like it just becomes a miserable experience. Yes. So you definitely have to take care of your feet. I mean, clothes is important, of course, and the pack is too, uh, as well, but man, without good boots and good socks and that combination working to keep your feet healthy, 
you're just not going to get a whole lot accomplished. Yeah. You you won't enjoy the trip. And I've been no. with people that that's happened to, and they're while you're going out and having encounters, they're sitting at camp drinking coffee. Exactly. Yeah, because they got to give their feet, you know, they either have to give them a day or two to rest or mm-hmm. their trip's over. Pretty much. Yep. So yep. question I have for you on base layers, what do you prefer more? And I feel like you're going to give me a mixed answer, but are you a Merino Merino guy or <laughs> synthetic? So if I, my blanket statement is, I'm not anti-merino, but mm-hmm. I am pro-synthetic. Um, now, part of that is because of what I do and where I do it. Yeah. So, you know, I'm normally active. I'm normally moving around. Um, I like to be. I like to be dry. I don't like my base layer to be damp. Mm-hmm. I don't mind that my base layer stinks a little bit. Yeah. I mean, my buddy might, but I don't. <laughs> yeah. um, but I want to dry out real quick. So for, for, for me, for this more dynamic hunting out West, I generally default to synthetic base layers. Okay. Um, for, for the reasons stated, right. Um, I, I hike to the top, you know, I hike up to the top of, to the, to a glassy knob and maybe I went a little too quick and I got all sweated up and I get up there. And it's breezy, so just like I said, we put on our puffy jacket or our windstopper in our puffy jacket. That synthetic base layer is going to be dry in no less or no more than fifteen minutes. Quick, right? So if it's cold up there and you're damp, and you don't have those pieces we just talked about, or even if you do, you may be a little chilled, mm-hmm. but it should dry super quick, and you should get over the chill pretty quick. I found personally with wool, it just takes a little bit longer. Yeah. And it kind of, I like to say steams, steams you dry. Like you kind of feel a little damp or or moist. I don't particularly care for that feeling. So I I default to synthetic for the hiking around. For whitetail hunting, it's almost exclusively wool. Mm -hmm. The reason is I'm not hiking as far to get to my stand or blind. I can moderate my pace and what I'm wearing so I'm not hopefully not rushing in there right so i don't sweat and even if i do wool's absolutely going to manage some moisture right yeah but the thing with wool is it's soft it's quiet and it manages odor better and i think when you're whitetail hunting any anything you can do to help manage your odor you should try to do big time so um listen if you own wool base layers as a whitetail hunter you don't don't hesitate to bring them out west but, you know, given the choice, that's the way I kind of like to split it up. Okay. I like that. I like it. Well, John, bef- before we part ways, I know we're running out of time here. What is uh, some final, say, parting advice you might have for listeners out there outside of like those eight pieces, the socks that we kind of talked about? Is there any other kind of, you know, stuff on your mind that you like to share with the listeners? <laughs> uh, yeah. How much time do we have? Um, Let's go. <laughs> yeah. No, there's there's a... So there's a couple things that come to mind. And the first one is because we're talking about, you know, Western hunting and, yeah. and I'm, I'm saying this because I've talked to a lot of people, uh, you know, a few have, have, have become friends over the years, but, yeah. um, but what I see is folks who live at a very low elevation. So it doesn't just have to be back East, but at a very low elevation, Texas may be probably one of those places, right. Yeah. Um, that 
you have to factor in the elevation that you're going to be hunting in because that elevation can have a really dramatic effect on not only your performance, but also your health. Yes. So, um, you know, for those that don't know, when you go up in elevation, there's less and less oxygen. Mm -hmm. And so generally speaking, people will say at about 8,000 feet, you should start to think about slowing down, moderating your pace, hydrating more, and kind of keep in check of yourself and your partner to not get these, uh, it's called altitude sickness. And there's some ones that are just like kind of mild headaches where you don't really feel good, maybe like a hangover. Yeah. Um, but there's all, but that can also progress into some really serious things that actually are life threatening. Um, so I think if you're going from a very low, you know, sea level, so to speak to anything, 8,000 feet and above, mm -hmm. that has to be factored in. And, you know, I, I talk about this quite a bit. I've actually got a free PDF on my website it's a trip planning PDF that, that talks, that talks people through this. So like if they, if they go and download it, um, it'll actually walk you through this and it'll really? say, Hey, if you're going above 8,000 feet, like you shouldn't go, you know, but a thousand feet higher a day until you acclimate. Right. And it, basically it's a checklist. Right. And, and, I, you know, unfortunately I've seen guys come out west like year after year after year to say to Colorado, they're leaving from you know, sea level, they're driving to a trailhead at 10,000 feet. They flew to Denver and landed at 5,000 feet. They've spent all year training. Mm -hmm. They're in super great shape. They get out of the truck, they go half a mile, they're gasping for breath and they're kicking their own butt and they don't know why. And then their trip's kind of ruined because it takes three days to recover and they never really get where they need to go. Yeah. You know, other people I've heard, so there was a, a friend of mine that, I mean, he ended up in the hospital, not, not to, you know, not to freak anybody out, but he ended up in the hospital last year, came from Pennsylvania, went and hunted mule deer at 12,000 feet. We actually had a discussion. I, 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 we had a, we actually did a podcast and we talked about this. And so he was very aware, him and mm -hmm. his partners were very aware that this could happen and it still happened to him. The thing is, because because him and his partners were aware, they knew that they didn't have any other option but to actually not only get down in elevation and leave the field, but to actually take this guy to the hospital who had to spend, I think he spent over, oh, I know he spent overnight in the hospital. Yeah. So, you know, you can be in great shape, but you have to fact, like, there's no way to get around it. Like, I live at 5,000 feet. Yeah. So, I can go to 10,000. Anything above 10,000 for me personally, like I know that I need to just watch myself, slow down, mm -hmm. maybe spend a, an extra day kind of getting acclimatized. I live at 5,000 feet. If I go to 12,000 feet right now, it's going to kick my butt. Yeah. I'm going to be slow. I'm going to be gasping for breath. My heart rate's going to be elevated. My heart's going to beat my ears. I know I need to hydrate. There's so many things to it. So that's one that I see people kind of make that mistake because it doesn't, you know, altitude is tasteless, odorless. You can't see it, but it's there. It's a right? silent so killer. That's, it is. A, it can be a silent killer. And you know, I've got I've got stories, a lot of stories about a couple about myself. I generally do pretty well at altitude, but friends who just don't. And you know, we've had some. I've I've 
I'll just say extracted. I mean, at some point you're helping people. Sometimes you're carrying their pack. I've never had to actually physically carry a person, but three friends I've had to get out of the mountains. Yeah. Um, because altitude. So maybe just for the sake of time, I'd say the single biggest thing is people who to include myself when I lived in Ohio, I didn't actually understand or or even know about this, Mm -hmm. but, but it, but it does exist. And if you don't understand it, it can really at a minute, Minimum, it's going to ruin your trip, and you just burned all your vacation days and spent a lot of money right now driving out here. Um, and, and and if you'd have just slowed down and understood it, like you could have actually gotten around. I I tell guys, so I'll, just real quick, but here's what I told my friend from, <clears throat> excuse me, from Ohio, who kept going to that trailhead at ten thousand feet, and I said, hey man, here's what you do: fly to Denver. And spend a night in Denver. So you spend a night at 5,000 feet. So that's going to be enough. Yeah. Don't drink, right? Don't drink alcohol if you can. Mm-hmm. The next day, drive to your trailhead at, say, 10,000 feet. Get out of the truck and just sleep there that night. So now you're sleeping. So you've gone from basically zero to five to 10,000 feet. That's a lot. Yeah. But I said, spend the night there, have a good dinner, whatever. I said, then the next two or three days, just hunt within a mile or two of your truck of the trailhead and just plan on moving a little slow. Don't plan on moving super fast. Like what you could do back, back where you, you know, are training, Mm -hmm. but you can still have a great hunt those two or three days, but you're not, you're not climbing all the way to 11,000, 12,000 feet, hunt around camp. You're not feeling good. Come back for the afternoon, maybe sleep in if you need to, maybe don't hunt a morning, whatever it is. But just take your time, but factor that into your trip. Because yep. I know, listen, I know people have short vacation days or running out here. They're like, man, I got seven days to get this done. Then don't go and hunt mule deer at 12,000 feet. Go hunt mule deer on the plains or go hunt antelope on the plains. And and maybe that's what you have to do because you just don't have enough time to get it done. No. Safely. Safely. See, and I, I've kind of learned this the hard way the very first year I went elk hunting. We went right up to eleven thousand, and you. Could, oh God! It, it was bad. It was bad. I mean, we didn't get sick or anything, but you know, you just you're. But you get, feel bad. Yeah, you're gassed, and the next day and a half is just it's hard. And so yeah. since that, we kind of do what you said. We we get to where we want to go, and that first morning, we just we take it easy. We we go in slow. See if we can get some bulls fired up, and we just kind of take it nice and slow the first two days, maybe three days, and then after that, you know, we feel feel good, acclimated, hydrated. We don't, I mean, we might have six or eight beers in the cooler for three guys because yeah. we just we don't yep. drink. We keep them for that success, right? Yep, yep, yep. And yep. Um, we make sure we're hydrated, and on day four, that's when we're starting to throw hail marys when we're acclimated. That that's a that that is a great plan that I think most people should probably, you know, even even people that do live out west and they're they're not living at altitude, depending on where you're going. Like that's a great plan. Mm-hmm. If I was going to mule deer hunt at twelve thousand feet, I would still do the plan you just described. But every day, you know, every twenty four hours, yeah, I'd probably move my camp just a thousand feet higher, and then the next day I'd hunt around there, and then the next day I'd move a thousand feet higher. So that's basically what they call yeah. acclimatization. Um, but yeah, it, 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 you know, the, the drinking of alcohol, well, let's just say dehydration Yeah, is, is really what factors into, uh, maybe accelerating some of these symptoms. Mm-hmm. And again, everybody's a little different, but 
you know, the hardest thing to do though, and, and I'm glad you said that because I'm sure, I'm sure this is true, but that first morning, tell me that's not the hardest morning to not go and just charge hard. Oh, it is. Cause you know, it's like, just, Oh, it's like Christmas. You morning. want to, but you can't, I know, but you, it, it's so difficult to not do that. Yeah. But it's probably what you should do. Yeah. Yeah. And seeing what we did last year, we were actually camped at, I think we were camped at 88 and we actually dropped, we had elk bugling. It was like two or 300 feet below us in elevation. Um, like a half mile away. So, I mean, we got lucky that morning that we were able to stay close to camp and, you know, we had some encounters, so that was pretty nice. Yeah. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but you know, oftentimes if everybody goes to the trailhead Mm -hmm. and jams eight miles in and you're the party that goes to the trailhead and hangs out around there, you know, within a mile or maybe a mile and a half for a couple of days, you you may be surprised at how many elk you get into (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that everybody may have that everybody else may have walked by um oh yeah so that's like, that's like the old man at deer camp that lets everybody go out to the stands <laughs> he he's, oh yeah you know, and he's just sitting on the back porch drinking his coffee and there's a 160 right out the back porch that's that's the i'm old telling man. you <laughs> i'm telling you uh i might I, I hopefully one day i'll be that old man but uh Same. in the meantime in the meantime it's hard to regulate your enthusiasm especially when you look for, forward to that all year. Yeah. But, but again, I just think people should be aware of the altitude, figure it out. Mm-hmm. Listen, if you're, if you're scouting an area, you've never been out West, you're scouting an area to hunt elk at 11,000 feet, either be aware that you're going to have to factor in more days or maybe find an area at 7,000 feet as opposed to 11,000 feet until yeah. you figure out how you do at altitude, how, you know, how, how your partner does and, 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 and then, you know, maybe on year two or three, you, you work your way up to 11,000, but, yeah. um, you just can't get around it. It's, it's going to, it's a great equalizer. Yeah. It's a great and, equalizer. Um, yeah. and it's something to respect. It, yeah, absolutely. It's something to respect. I've seen dudes that are far tougher than me and, and more sh- and, and in better shape be brought to their knees mm-hmm. and literally could not carry their pack out, could not, focus because of splitting migraine headaches, coughing up blood, uh, you know, uh, nauseous, like it's, it's real. Yeah. And so anyways, that's, that's my, that's my one parting shot to the, to people that want to come and, and, and hunt out West and, and kind of figure it out. No, I love it, man. I think these are all things that people need to think, be thinking about things that they need to consider, not only just from the clothing side of it, but like you said, altitude, it's a great equalizer. You got to respect it. Yep. Yep. There's nobody getting around it to include me. So, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, John, tell tell us real quick where the listeners can find you on social media, uh, with, with your, uh, your own brand that you have. And so tell us a little bit about that, where we can find you. Yeah. So, uh, I think two years ago, basically when COVID started, I just wanted to, I just felt like maybe I had a unique perspective on things or some information that could, you know, maybe help people. So I started, uh, so I started a YouTube or, or sorry, an IG page and mm-hmm. that's at J at J Barklow. But the platform I really promote is called knowledge from storms, which yeah. is knowledge acquired from experience right and honestly you acquire i acquire more knowledge from the bad trips or the ones that don't go so well and i and i do struggle mm-hmm. as opposed to the ones that that uh that just go great right so that's knowledge from storms so i have a website knowledgefromstorms.com 
And like I said, that that trip planning PDFs there. There's a monthly newsletter I send out where I talk about training and gear and equipment and mindset and all that. And then there's also a YouTube uh, channel where I've got I think eight or nine videos right now. So that's also knowledgefromstorms.com. And then you know, like you and I had talked offline, like. There's some other exciting things that, you know, I can't announce at the moment, but yep. that'll be coming out here this, this summer. And, and, and basically all that's free and, you know, m- maybe it sounds goofy or not, but, um, I, I just, there's, there's so many resources out there. Um, a lot of them aren't quote vetted. Um, I, I just wanted to, I just want to help people go and have an awesome time and enjoy the outdoors at whatever they want to do, however they want to do it. Um, and whatever they want to wear, quite frankly, I don't care. I, they, they could, whatever they got, I can help them figure it out yep. and get the best performance out of what they, they have. Um, and so that, that's a platform knowledge from storms. Love it, man. Love it. Well, John, man, I really appreciate you hopping on the podcast with us today, talking to the listeners, talking gear, clothing, altitude, respecting that. So, man, just can't thank you enough for your time today. That was a great conversation. Well, I I appreciate you reaching out. It was really good to catch up. Absolutely, man. I loved it. All right, y'all. There you go. Hopefully, you're able to take what John has brought to the table for y'all. You got some golden nuggets out of that. You're going to be able to take it, apply it to elk season this year he talked about those eight pieces that he carries with him pretty much for most of big game whatever he's chasing after unless he's going to be in some extreme weather and he knows it so you know the eight pieces now you know feet are essential and you've got to respect altitude so again y'all we just want to thank you for tuning in to the hunt stand podcast we will see you on the next one